Chapter Twenty Six of Faulkner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Faulkner by Mary Shelley. Chapter Twenty Six Faulkner's Narrative. To palliate crime, and by investigating motive, to render guilt less odious, such is not the feeling that rules my pen. To confer honor upon innocence, to vindicate virtue, and announce truth, though that offer my own name as a mark for deserved infamy, such are my motives. And if I reveal the secrets of my heart, and dwell on the circumstances that led to the fatal catastrophe I record, so that, though a criminal, I do not appear quite a monster, let the egotism be excused for her dear sake, within whose young and gentle heart I would fain that my memory should be enshrined without horror, though with blame. The truth, the pure and sacred truth, will alone find expression in these pages. I write them in a land of beauty, but of desolation, in a country whose inhabitants are purchasing by blood and misery the dearest privileges of human nature, where I have come to die. It is night, the cooing aziolo, the hooting owl, the flashing firefly, the murmur of time-honored streams, the moonlit foliage of the grey olive woods, dark crags and rugged mountains, throwing awful shadows, and the light of the eternal stars, such are the objects around me. Can a man speak false in the silence of night, when God and his own heart alone keep watch, when conscience hears the moaning of the dead in the pauses of the breeze, and sees one pale lifeless figure float away on the current of the stream, my heart whispers that before such witnesses the truth will be truly recorded, and my blood curdles, and my nerves, so firm amid the din of battle, shrink and shudder at the tale I am about to narrate. What is crime? A deed done injurious to others, forbidden by religion, condemned by morality, and which human laws are enacted to punish a criminal feels all mankind to be his foes. The whole frame of society is erected for his especial ruin. Before he had a right to choose his habitation in the land of his forefathers, and placing the sacred name of liberty between himself and power, none dared check his free-born steps. His will was his law. The limits of his physical strength were the only barriers to his wildest wanderings. He could walk erect and fear the eye of no man. He who commits a crime forfeits these privileges. Men from out of the lowest grade of society can say to him, You must come with us. They can drag him from those he loves, immure him in a loathsome cell, dole out scant portions of the unchartered air, make a show of him, lead him to death, and throw his body to the dogs, and society, which for the innocent would have raised one cry of horror against the perpetrators of such outrages, look on and clap their hands with applause. This is a vulgar aspect of the misery of which I speak. A crime may never be discovered. Mine lies buried in my own breast. 
Years have passed, and none point at me and whisper, There goes the murderer. But do I not feel that God is my enemy, and my own heart whispers condemnation? I know that I am an impostor, that any day may discover the truth, but more heavy than any fear of detection is the secret hidden in my own heart. The icy touch of the death I caused creeps over me during the night. I am pursued by the knowledge that naught I do can prosper, for the cry of innocence is raised against me, and the earth groans with the secret burden I have committed to her bosom that the death-blow was not actually dealt by my hand in no manner mitigates the stings of conscience. My act was the murderer, though my intention was guiltless of death. Is there a man who at some time has not desired to possess, by illegal means, a portion of another's property, or to obey the dictates of an animal instinct, and plant his foot on the neck of his enemy? few are so cold of blood or tempered of mood as not at some one time to have felt hurried beyond the demarcation set up by conscience and law few but have been tempted without the brink of the forbidden but they stopped while i leaped beyond there is the difference between us falsely do they say who allege that there is no difference in guilt between the thought and act to be tempted is human, to resist temptation, surely, if framed like me, such is to raise us from our humanity into the sphere of angels. Many are the checks afforded us. Some are possessed by fear. Others are endowed by a sensibility so prophetic of the evil they must ensue, that perforce they cannot act the thing they desire. They tremble at the idea of being the cause of events over whose future course they can have no control. They fear injuring others and their own remorse. But I disdained all these considerations. They occurred but faintly and ineffectually to my mind. Piety, conscience, and moral respect yielded before a feeling which decked its desires in the garb of necessity. Oh, how vain it is to analyze motive! Each man has the same motives, but it is the materials of each mind, the plastic or rocky nature, the mild or the burning temperament, that rejects the alien influence, or receives it into its own essence and causes the act. Such an impulse is as a summer healthy breeze just dimpling a still lake to one, while to another it is the whirlwind that rouses him to spread ruin around. The Almighty, who framed my miserable being, made me a man of passion. They say that of such are formed the great and good. I know not that. I am neither. But I will not arraign the Creator. I will hope that in feeling my guilt, in acknowledging the super-excellence of virtue, I fulfill in part his design. After me, let no man doubt, but that to do what is right is to ensure his own happiness, or that self-restraint and submission to the voice of conscience implanted in our souls impart more dignity of feeling, more true majesty of being, than a puerile assertion of will, and a senseless disregard of immutable principles. 
Is passion known in these days? Such as I felt, has any other experienced it? The expression has fled from our lips, but it is as deep-seated as ever in our hearts. Who of created beings has not loved? Who of my sex has not felt the struggle, and the yielding in the struggle, of the better to the worse parts of our nature? Who so dead to nature's influence as not, at least for some brief moments, to have felt that body and soul were a slight sacrifice to obtain possession of the affections of her he loved? Who, for some moments in his life, would not have seen his mistress dead at his feet rather than wedded to another? To feel this tyranny of passion is to be human. To conquer it is to be virtuous. He who conquers himself is, in my eyes, the only true hero. Alas, I am not such. I am among the vanquished, and view the wretch I am, and learn that there is nothing so contemptible, so pitiable, so eternally miserable, as he who is defeated in his conflict with passion. That I am such, this very scene, this very occupation, testifies. Once the slave of headlong impulse, I am now the victim of remorse. I am come to seek death, because I cannot retrieve the past. I long for the moment when the bullet shall pierce my flesh, and the pains of dissolution gather round me. Then I may hope to be, that for which I thirst, free. There is one who loves me. She is pure and kind as a guardian angel. She is as my own child. She implores me to live. With her my days might pass in a peace and innocence that saints might envy. But so heavy are the fetters of memory, so bitter the slavery of my soul, that even she cannot take away the sting from life. Death is all I covet. When these pages are read, the hand that traces them will be powerless. The brain that dictates will have lost its functions. This is my last labor, my legacy to my fellow beings. Do not let them disdain the outpourings of a heart which for years has buried its recollections and remorse in silence. The waters were pent up by a dam. Now they rush impetuously forth. They roar as if pursued by a thousand torrents. Their turmoil deafens heaven. And what, though their sound be only conveyed by the little implement that traces these lines, not less headlong than the swelling waves is the spirit that pours itself out in these words. I am calmer now. I have been wandering beside the stream, and despite the lurking foe and deceptive moonbeams I have ascended the steep mountain's side, and looked out on the misty sea, and sought to gain from reposing nature some relief to my sense of pain. The hour of midnight is at hand. All is still. I am calm, and with deliberation begin to narrate that train of circumstances, or rather of feelings, that hurried me first to error, then to crime, and lastly brought me here to die. I lost my mother before I can well remember. I have a confused recollection of her crying, and of her caressing me, and I can call to mind seeing her ill in bed, and her blessing me. But these ideas are rather like revelations of an antenatal life than belonging to reality. 
She died when I was four years old. My childhood's years were stormy and drear. My father, a social and, I believe, even a polite man in society, was rough and ill-tempered at home. He had gambled away his own slender younger brother's fortune and his wife's portion, and was too idle to attend to a profession, and yet not indolent enough for a life devoid of purpose and pursuit. Our family was a good one. It consisted of two brothers, my father and my uncle. This latter, favored of birth and fortune, remained long unmarried and was in weak health. My father expected him to die. His death and his own consequent inheritance of the family estate was his constant theme, but the delayed hope irritated him to madness. I knew his humor even as a child, and escaped it as I could. His voice calling my name made my blood run cold. His epithets of abuse, so frequently applied, filled me with boiling but ineffectual rage. I am not going to dwell on those painful days when, a weak tiny boy, I felt as if I could contend with the paternal giant, and did contend, till his hand felled me to the ground or cast me from his threshold with scorn and seeming hate. I dare say he did not hate me, but certainly no touch of natural love warmed his heart. One day he received a letter from his brother. I was but ten years old, but rendered old and careworn by suffering. I remember that I looked on him as he took it, and exclaimed, "'From Uncle John, what have we here?' with a nervous tremor as to the passions the perusal of it might excite." He chuckled as he broke the seal. He fancied that he called him to his dying bed. "'And that well over you shall go to school, my fine fellow,' he cried. "'We shall have no more of your tricks at home.' He broke the seal. He read the letter. It announced his brother's marriage, and asked him to the wedding. I let fall the curtain over the scene that ensued. You would have thought that a villainous fraud had been committed, in which I was implicated. He drove me with blows from his door. I foamed with rage, and then I sat down and wept, and crept away to the fields and wondered why I was born, and longed to kill my uncle, who was the cause to me of so much misery. Everything changed for the worse now. Hitherto my father had lived on hope, now he despaired. He took to drinking, which exalted his passions and debased his reason. This at times gave me a superiority over him. When tipsy I could escape his blows, which yet, when sober, fell on me with double severity. But even the respite I gained through his inebriety afforded me no consolation. I fell at once humbled and indignant at the shame so brought on us. I, child as I was, expostulated with him. I was knocked down and kicked from the room. Oh, what a world this appeared to me! A war of the weak with the strong, and how I despised everything except victory. Time wore on. My uncle's wife bore him in succession two girls. This was a respite. My father's spirits rose. But fallen as he was, he could only celebrate his reawakened hopes by deeper potations and coarse jokes. 
The next offspring was a boy. He cost my father his life. Habits of drink had inflamed his blood, and his violence of temper made him nearly a maniac. On hearing of the birth of the heir, he drank to drown thought. Wine was too slow a medicine. He quaffed deeply of brandy, and fell into a sleep, or rather torpor, from which he never after awoke. It was better so. He had spent everything. He was deeply in debt. He had lost all power of raising himself from the state of debasement into which he had fallen. The next day would have seen him in prison. I was taken in by my uncle. At first the peace and order of the household seemed to me paradise. The comfort and regularity of the meals was a sort of happy and perpetual miracle. My eye was no longer blasted by the sight of frightful excesses, nor my ear wounded by obstreperous shouts. I was no longer reviled. I no longer feared being felled to the ground. I was not any more obliged to obtain food by stratagem or by expostulations, which always ended by my being the victim of personal violence. The mere calm was balmy, and I fancied myself free, because I was no longer in a state of perpetual terror. But soon I felt the cold and rigid atmosphere that, as far as regarded me, ruled this calm. No eye of love ever turned on me, no voice ever spoke a cheering word. I was there on sufferance, and was quickly deemed a troublesome inmate." while the order and regularity required of me, and the law passed that I was never to quit the house alone, became at last more tormenting than the precarious but wild and precious liberty of my former life. My habits were bad enough. My father's vices had fostered my evil qualities. I had never learned to lie or cheat, for such was foreign to my nature, but I was rough, self-willed, lazy, and insolent. I have a feeling, such was my sense of bliss, on first entering the circle of order and peace, that a very little kindness would have subdued my temper, and awakened a desire to please. It was not tried. From the very first I was treated with a coldness to which a child is peculiarly sensitive. The servants, by enforcing the rules of the house, became first my tormentors, and then my enemies. I grew imperious and violent. Complaint, reprehension, and punishment despoiled my paradise of its matin glow. And then I returned at once to my own bad self. I was disobedient and reckless. Soon it was decreed that I was utterly intolerable, and I was sent to school. This, a boy's common fate, I had endured without a murmur, had it not been inflicted as a punishment— and I made over to my new tyrants, even in my own hearing, as a little blackguard, quite irreclamable, and only to be kept in order by brute force. It is impossible to describe the effect of this declaration of my uncle, followed up by the master's recommendation to the usher, to break my spirit if he could not bend it, had on my heart, which was bursting with a sense of injury, panting for freedom, and resolved not to be daunted by the menaces of the tyrants before me. I declared war with my whole soul against the world. I became all I had been painted. 
I was sullen, vindictive, desperate. I resolved to run away. I cared not what would befall me. I was nearly fourteen. I was strong and could work. I could join a gang of gypsies. I could act their life singly, and, subsisting by nightly depredation, spend my days in liberty. It was at an hour when I was meditating flight that the master sent for me. I believed that some punishment was in preparation. I hesitated whether I should not instantly fly. A moment's thought told me that that was impossible, and that I must obey. I went with a dogged air, and a determination to resist. I found my tyrant with a letter in his hand. "'I do not know what to do with you,' he said. "'I have a letter here from a relation, asking you to spend the day. You deserve no indulgence, but for this once you may go. Remember,' Any future permission depends upon your turning over an entirely new leaf. Go, sir, and be grateful to my lenity, if you can. Remember, you are to be home at nine. I asked no questions. I did not know where I was to go. Yet I left him without a word. I was sauntering back to the prison-yard, which they called a playground, when I was told that there was a pony chaise at the door ready to take me. My heart leaped at the word. I fancied that, by means of this conveyance, I could proceed on the first stage of my flight. The pony carriage was of the humblest description. An old man drove. I got in, and away we trotted, the little cob that drew it going much faster than his looks gave warrant. The driver was deaf. I was sullen. Not a word did we exchange. My plan was that he should take me to the farthest point he intended, and then that I should leap out and take to my heels. As we proceeded, however, my rebel fit somewhat subsided. We left the town in which the school was situated, and the dreary dusty roads I was accustomed to perambulate under the superintendence of the ushers. We entered shady lanes and umbrageous groves, we perceived extensive prospects, and saw the winding of romantic streams. A curtain seemed drawn from before the scenes of nature, and my spirits rose as I gazed on new objects, and saw earth spread wide and free around. At first this only animated me to a keener resolve to fly. But as we went on, a vague sentiment possessed my soul. The skylarks winged up to heaven, and the swallows skimmed the green earth. I felt happy because nature was gay, and all things free and at peace. We turned from a lane redolent with honeysuckle into a little wood, whose short, thick turf was interspersed with moss and starred with flowers. Just as we emerged, I saw a little railing, a rustic green gate, and a cottage clustered over with woodbine and jessamine, standing secluded among, yet peeping out from the overshadowing trees. A little peasant boy threw open the gate, and we drove up to the cottage door. At a low window, which opened on the lawn, in a large armchair sat a lady, evidently marked by ill health, yet with something so gentle and unearthly in her appearance, as at once to attract and please. Her complexion had faded into whiteness, her hair was nearly silver, yet not a grizzled grayish-white, but silken still in its change. 
Her dress was also white, and there was something of a withered look about her, redeemed by a soft but bright grey eye, and more by the sweetest smile in the world, which she wore, as rising from her chair she embraced me, exclaiming, "'I know you from your likeness to your mother, dear, dear Rupert!' That name of itself touched a chord which for many years had been mine. My mother had called me by that name. So indeed had my father, when any momentary softness of feeling allowed him to give me any other appellation except, You, sir, you dog you. My uncle, after whom I was also called John, chose to drop what he called a silly romantic name, and in his house and in his letters I was always John. Rupert breathed of a dear home and my mother's kiss, and I looked inquiringly on her, who gave it me, when my attention was attracted, riveted by the vision of a lovely girl who had glided in from another room and stood near us, radiant in youth and beauty. She was indeed supremely lovely, exuberant in all the charms of girlhood, and her beauty was enhanced by the very contrast to the pale lady by whom she stood. And Hurry, she seemed, standing by a disembodied spirit, black, soft, large eyes, overpowering in their luster, and yet more so from the soul that dwelt within. A cherub look, a fairy form, with a complexion and shape that spoke of health and joy. What could it mean? Who could she be? And who was she who knew my name? It was an enigma, but one full of promise to me, who had so long been exiled from the charities of life, and who, as the heart panteth for the water brooks, panted for love. End of chapter 26